Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When shorts were short only concerns itself with what was actually a very narrow window in football history when teams wore, well, short shorts. The podcast will only cover football from 1954, when Umbro made their first England kit with shorter shorts, a design that was widespread within English football by the mid-50s, to 1992, when short shorts were all but finished as Umbro's baggy shorts for Tottenham's new kit, ahead of the 91 FA Cup final, quickly caught on. I'm Daniel Ruiz-Tyson. This is when shorts were short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. This week, the second and final part of our David Snowden interview, looking at the ultimately doomed Alan Durban 81-84 era at Sunderland. If you missed the first part, park this episode right here and download the opening instalment and listen to that first. David, the author of Give Us Tomorrow Now, Alan Durban's Mission Impossible, his take on the Durban era, talks enthusiastically and with no end of regret for what he and many Sunderland fans of his generation feel was a wasted opportunity. A promise inside under a still young manager who had promising work at Stoke behind him was allowed to come to nothing. When now in the summer of 1982, moves for England's then most recent captains fail to come off, Kevin Keegan is bound for neighbours Newcastle, and a protracted move for England's World Cup skipper, Ipswich's Mick Mills, ends with Mills joining Southampton instead. Leighton James and Frank Worthington, however, do join during the 82-83 campaign, but Durban also has to contend with cuts to his coaching staff and an increasingly difficult relationship with an impatient chairman and boardroom. Here's David Snowden. Despite the turbulence at the club, it's clear from Give Us Tomorrow Now that Durban had his sights trained on the long term despite the fickle nature of life as a as a football manager that summer he gets the club voted into the 10 vacancies created to form a new second tier of the central league he feels that the north midlands league which sunderland's reserves had won wasn't strong enough a lot of managers even now simply worry about the first team protecting their job durban was taking a holistic approach to things wasn't he Oh, very much so. Uh, an organic, holistic approach. He would play himself in the reserves. He would play Mick Doherty, the coach, in the reserves because he's, let's let's say what the how how the players, how the young players respond. Having a talker in the team, Mick Doherty, a player, he'll talk to them. He'll he'll give advice through the game. Obviously, Durban, if he if he put himself in the team, would. Um, when when he brought Pop Robson in as his player coach in in the summer of '83, Pop Robson was a reserve team regular. Colin West would remark he would learn good habits 
good things from Pop Robson when Robson would turn out for the reserves. It was, um, uh, yeah, it was very, very much that philosophy. Durban need felt that what, what was the good of walking away with the North Midlands League, which he described as dead. And some of the attendances, I think, were, were Yorks. I think they played away at York. There was 11 people attending. It just illustrates the point. And how can a, a player prepare adequately to have to step in short notice um, to cover for injuries in a first division match in front of a big crowd and, um, against top top quality opposition when they haven't the preparation has not been ideal. Durban loses some of his backroom staff in the summer. Uh, his coach Jim Montgomery, his scouting chief Jimmy Greenhall. They're made redundant by the club. Now, when the season starts, and this is highly unusual, Durban sends two players to Meadow Lane to check up on their next opponents, Notts County. I mean, this is just extraordinary. How long did this arrangement go on for? Well, I think the um, sending the young players, because um, John Cook and Mick Whitfield, I believe it was, was sent to the Not to um, scout, well, to watch Notts County's uh, match in on the on opening day. 82, 83, and they were going to report back with their findings. Sunderland drew 1-1, as it turns out, with Notch County. Uh, uh, how much tactical insight they were able to, to offer is a moot point. And I think later on, there were more practical uh, measures taken, Well, which makes sense. I mean, if Leighton James is ruled out through injury and he sends Leighton James to watch Arsenal win because Sunderland are due to play Arsenal soon. Arsenal are playing at Aston Villa, so he sends Leighton James to Villa Park to, to watch them. But Leighton James has, to use Alan Durban's good expression, he has that know-how. He's got that tactical acumen, and he can he can read a game, just like Frank Worthington can read a game, and he can pick up on things, sending Mick Whitfield and John Cook uh, to watch a match is one thing, but sending Leighton James is a different proposition altogether. And it, it made good sense because Leighton James is unavailable. So why not? But I, I, don't, I don't think it was a, it was a regular occurrence to, to send members of the squad. It was, it was more the case that it was... In fact, I think it was more a case that it, it was a slight rarity in that it, it warranted getting mentioned in the press because it wasn't that common. The pressure on Sunderland in the summer of 82 intensifies with the stunning news that neighbours Newcastle have made a marquee signing in Kevin Keegan, persuading him to drop down into the second division. Just before that move, Durban, we learn in your book, had been made aware of Keegan's availability. Was a move for him ever on? Well, uh, a well-respected journalist who covers the northeast area for a national paper told me that he was in the hotel the St Andrews Hotel, Sunderland won a pre-season tour of Scotland, and when they were in the, um, and Alan Durban always liked to take in the golf course if possible, so they were in the St Andrews Hotel, and the journalist told me that he was there when Durban took the call, um, or had to go leave, leave the room to take a call from, uh, making him aware, I think, by by an agent that Kevin Keegan was available. However, we've got to quantify this against the fact that so many clubs, I would, I would say every team in the first and second division were probably made aware of Kevin Kagan's availability. And when Kevin Kagan's eventual move to Newcastle was in danger 
of falling through when the league or the authorities, the FA, demanded that Newcastle must pay the balance the old West Bromwich Albion for the purchase of John Truitt in order for the, the Keegan deal to go ahead. I think seven Newcastle United directors or, or a number of Newcastle directors stumped up £7,000 each out of their own pockets to ensure that the money for Truitt was paid off and the, and the Keegan deal could go ahead. But I think I quote in the, in the book, 11, 11 clubs at least were standing by to move in for Keegan if Newcastle were, found themselves in a position where they couldn't finalise the deal. So, theoretically, Sunderland could have moved in for Keegan. And, and, and really, and this has nothing to do with any northeast rivalry, Sunderland would have been the more immediate appealing prospect for Keegan to sign for. And this has nothing to do with, oh, Sunderland's better than Newcastle, Newcastle's better than Sunderland. This is purely because Sunderland were in the top flight and Newcastle were in the second flight. And Keegan still had um, England international ambitions at the time. At that point, he hadn't been, he had not been left out of Bobby Robson's squad, um, which sparked his premature international retirement. So he still had England ambitions, and first division would have been the more um, realistic option for him. Early in the new season, Durban makes another inquiry for another England captain. This is Ipswich's Mick Mills. This time, Mills, who's just captained England in the World Cup, he's been released by Ipswich, so he's definitely moving somewhere. But the move to Sunderland drags on. Durban is bending over backwards to accommodate the player, but Mills's reluctance to move to Wearside is the telling factor. He Ultimately, the move comes to nothing. Tell us how it all played out second time around. Yeah, well, second time around, it's, it became apparent that Durban... Well, there was a deadline set for Millers to make the decision. Millers said, I'll make the decision in the next 24 hours. There were other, one or two other interested parties. The deadline was allowed to pass. Uh, Durban did bend. He, he said, well, it's a big decision. Okay, we'll, um, we'll give them a bit longer. But it became apparent that Sunderland was very much not McMillan's M- first choice. Uh, far from it. He was hanging on at, some, at one point to... See if John Neal at second division, and I'll emphasise that second division, Chelsea were going to come in with a hardened bid because he seemed to uh, have a preference, strong preference for that move over coming to Sunderland. And then, of course, the way it panned out in the end was that when Chelsea didn't make the move, he did agree. He, he had given, as far as Durham was concerned, his word should have been his bond. He said he would join Sunderland. Press conference arranged for. The Monday afternoon at Roker Park, and well, Mills didn't didn't travel northeast. Uh, Durban took a phone call, I think, less than an hour before the plan. Well, too late certainly to call the press conference off. Mills had received a late approach from Laurie McMenemy at, at Southampton, and would be he told Durban the news on the phone that he would be joining them instead, and. Well, Durban hung up on Mills, and Mills, well, Mills said he admitted that he, he wasn't surprised. We will come to some positives in Durban's time at Sunderland shortly, because there is a fine run of form later in the season. But before that, there's a shocking eight-nil defeat at newly promoted Watford in September of '82. Sunderland had lost their previous three games going into that match, but the result was still an absolute shocker. At that point, just over a year into Durban's reign, 
how was it looking for him and the club? Well, surprisingly enough, still relatively healthy. Obviously, he's disappointed for the travelling supporters who travelled all that way and had to suffer an 8 0 defeat. But I think, from my own point of view, and I hope I'm in accord with a with a, a large chunk of people in, in that to look at it pragmatically, you know, providing it doesn't harm the goal difference to make a crucial difference in the long run, I'd much rather lose a football match heavily, 5-0, or in this case 8-0, than lose 4-3 to a last-minute piece of bad luck. It's, it's, it's easy in the stomach. So I think the... The, the, there was no immediate knee-jerk reactions from from the supporters, and and and, and of course it was held by a, a wonderful 4-1 home victory the the following week um, at home against Norwich City, which was a was a, which was a tremendous performance and, and result. I mean the attendance might have been knocked slightly, but not um, when I've looked at the the records for the the other attendances so far that season, not not greatly. Just staying with Watford a moment longer, one thing that surprises me about Durban, I think, is there are several occasions through the book where he's quoted as praising Watford's football, which certainly would have put him in a minority. Graham Taylor's football wasn't the easiest on the eye. You know, regularly slated for being direct and dark ages. There have been, you know, one or two former Villa players you know, at which point in his career, Graham Taylor, the, the, you know, the football at Villa was supposed to be reasonably attractive and players that played for him, particularly in the early part of his time at Villa, say, well, no, we didn't enjoy the football. So what, if anything, can we read into Durban's views on Watford's style of play? Well, contrary to the to the myth, to the perception of Durban as a dower, somebody who preaches negative defensive football, he he had a he did possess an, a, a, an attacking philosophy and Watford's style he interpreted and and viewed as an attacking force um, playing playing with wingers we've got Nigel Callaghan and John Barnes more than one central forward uh, with Morris Johnston well Morris Johnson came later but you had uh, Ross Jenkins Luther Blissett later you had um, uh, Morris Johnston and uh, George Riley. Um, you've got attacking full-backs. We've got former Sunderland player Wilf Rostrand playing at left-back. You've got, they weren't so sound defensively. So it's ironic that, I mean, Durban admires them and he, he, he admires their attacking philosophy. Yes, route one, but then again, uh, Howard Wilkinson was vilified at, uh, on some occasions for, for so-called route one with Sheffield Wednesday. But I think Watford and Sheffield Wednesday were a little more... Um, was sophisticated than the likes of Wimbledon later on. After a, a narrow defeat at Birmingham in November, leaves Sunderland bottom of the table. Durban signs veteran striker, who you mentioned earlier, and uh, showman extraordinaire Frank Worthington from Leeds. He doesn't bring much in the way of goals by this stage of his career, but how important a job does he do for the team just, just for that short time that he was there? Well, contrary to... Again, uh, this perception of him as being a, a good time Charlie and uh, a good-looking woman on each arm and going to the nightclubs and um, burning the candle at both ends and failing a medical at Liverpool because his blood pressure was raised by a, a, a recent foreign holiday. He was a, a consummate professional. 
which um, as there's a quote in my book by Leighton James. Leighton James, forget all the stories. He, he was uh, not, not many better professionals than Frank Worthington. And he, and he could see things on the pitch. He and Leighton James would get together and say, right, this needs doing, that needs doing. They had the young legs around them to do the, the spade work, so to speak. His influence in the dressing room, his, his, his training, he, he would be a good trainer because Durban would not tolerate anybody going through the motions and not putting their 100% effort into training. So uh, there's no question that Frank Worthington worked. He, he was a worker. He's 34. He's, okay, to use an expression, his legs had gone, but he still had the tactical brain and, and a little subtle flick could achieve as much as... Um, Somebody with, uh, oh, he's got a good engine. He's got a good set of lungs. Well, yeah, Frank Worthington's got that tactical know-how. He's got the ability um, to play little, little astute passes and create things for others. And he was a good influence off the pitch as well. Uh, even little bits of advice like before the Arsenal match, when they won, someone won 3-0, he went out, he inspected the pitch. It was a bit frosty underfoot. To all the, went into all the lads, moulded studs, if you've got them. Good idea to do that. Someone totally outplayed Arsenal that day. That game you mentioned, uh, the 3-0 win at home to Arsenal, that kick-starts a sequence of games where the results are probably the most consistent of the Durban era. There's an eight-match unbeaten run if you uh, discount the early exit in the FA Cup to Manchester City after a replay <laughs> The eight-match unbeaten league run includes goalless draws with United, league champions Liverpool and Forest, and there's a 2-0 win over European champions Villa. There's a a mid-February defeat to Southampton, and then Sunderland go another five games unbeaten. What had changed for the team during this impressive period? They tightened up defensively. Uh, Gordon Chisholm and Ian Atkins had been tried as a central defensive partnership, and they gelled. Jimmy Nicholl, Ian Monroe working well as fullbacks. We had Chris Turner because of the increased understanding with his back four, was able to dominate his six-yard box more. So they tightened up. They were keeping more clean sh- sheets. Always good news to Durban's ears and and all Sunderland supporters. Further up the pitch, we've got the rival Leighton James. Generally, again, he didn't he didn't quite have the pace that he had in his early career, but he could play telling passes inside the full-back as well as when he did have the chance to cross, delivering some superb crosses. The number of goals that Gary Rowell, who had a good season goal out, put in 82-83. The number that were stemming from Leighton James' assists is um, is quite remarkable. And and just generally the, um, the confidence that had received a, a massive boost. It was an exciting place for the supporters to visit. Um, I mean, schoolboys would be talking about. I mean, okay, Frank Frank Worthington wasn't exactly banging in the goals, but you say, did you did you did you see Frankie? Did you see what he did? Did you see this? And and it was an exciting um, it was an exciting period in the Sunderland's um, early eighties history. Yet the fans are still staying away. And you mentioned a line from a match report for the two-one home win over Everton in early March '83. Right. And the line is winning no longer appears sufficient for Roker fans. How accurate was that line? Again, vocal minority. I think the 
the the majority support had seen real progress and the, the, the team was looking. I mean, circumstances would take a bit of a, a bash, but the team was looking like establishing safety, top flight safety, a lot sooner than the previous season. And that was the that was Durban's goal. That was, I think, the majority of Sunderland's supporters' goal. I think it was a water minority. Leighton James, unlike Frank Worthington, am I right when I say that he immerses himself in the area? He moves to Sunderland, whereas Worthington is still commuting there from wherever he was living while at Leeds. And how much of a factor is that in Worthington moving on after the end of the season? I would say the primary. It's a primary factor. Worthington, I think, resided in Halifax. He more or less took a permanent residence in the Seaburn Hotel in Sunderland. Fully professional, fully committed in, in one sense, but geographically not. In that, so, so Durban would have an issue with that. Uh, Leighton James uh, moved up. He, he started, uh, uh, as you said, involved himself in local um, activity. He signed up to play for Whitburn Cricket Club during the summer. So there was that level of commitment. I think they both had the same um, length of contract. It, initially, they were they joined in, midway through the 82-83 season. I, I think they both had 18-month contracts. So that wasn't the... Um, I don't think uh, Worthington was initially anticipating it to be a sh- so, short, so short this year. But Alan Durham's a strong character. And I don't think he, he's the type that it was influenced by power of the press. But as I mentioned in the book, and I think... Looking back, it looks, I think some, some journalists need to take a long, hard look at themselves. The press fell out of love with Frank Worthington. He was initially feared, um, and there was this, this quotes to say what, what a good influence. Oh, he's transformed the team, more or less. And then, oh, three months later, as if, as if his contribution on field is negligible. You know, he'd only scored two goals, but his, his on, his on field and off field influence, as far as, as most people in the know are concerned, was massive. Uh, but the press did fall out of love. I think um, Durban knew that if Worthington did go, there would probably be very little recriminations. But I don't think that Alan Durban's such a strength of character that I don't think he would be influenced by, by the press falling out of love with Worthington. The penultimate game of the season sees Sunderland seventh from bottom travelling to Arsenal where a Colin West goal gives them all three points and there's no final game of the season cliffhanger that year. Notable departures at the end of the season, as we just mentioned, Frank Worthington. The much-disliked Lecoq Sportif kit also goes Nike restoring stripes and black shorts to the new Sunderland strip. With regards to 83-84, who were the notable arrivals and departures that summer? And was this the season when it was all supposed to finally come together for Durban and Sunderland? Well, that, that was the plan. But, but what was not on the, in the script was that the main dealing, which the departure of Ali McCoyst, because Durban was not back in the transfer market. He, he wanted to revamp his midfield. He felt that was the that was going to be the backbone of the team. And, he, and to an extent, he was quite correct. He wanted to finalise the permanent deal that he'd initially set up for Mark Proctor from Nottingham Forest, which was a reasonable fee for £115,000. Of about £250,000 fee lined up to bring his former Stoke player, Paul Bracewell, who was still only 21, but as captain Stoke, 
is an England established England under 21 international. Durban needs to secure those signings. And unless he was prepared to sell one of his starlets, Nick Pickering or Barry Venison, McCoist was the man who unfortunately was sacrificed. And McCoist had been the, the focus of repeated interest from Scotland throughout his time at Sunderland. And, and that seemed to be the most immediate prospect to generate the cash. The, the move appealed to McCoist, although he, he would have been quite happy to stay at Rotter Park. And it is so sad that Durban was more or less backed into a corner if he had been given the, given the transfer funds to complete that midfield revamp and still keep McCoist. Well, who knows how the future would have transpired. And another crucial incoming that season was on the coaching side because a fantastic coach to acquire was Pop Robson, well respected. And, and the bonus was, even 37 years old, he was so fit that he, he brought uh, his, his credentials as a backup striker into the mix as well, which partly ameliorated the, the disappointment of, of McCoy's departure. But it, was, it, was a, it wasn't the ideal trade-off, and, and it's, um, it's sad to reflect on. Leighton James is also, in your words, manoeuvred into a coaching role at the club around this time. Was this, was this a premature step, given how well he was playing? To the naked eye, it seemed that way, but we must... Um, and I made the I made the same mistake because I was talking to Leighton James, and um, I, I had to be told in no uh, in a very distinct terms that Leighton James does not get manoeuvred where he doesn't want to go. And there's no mistake, make no mistake about that. So it was of his volition, Leighton James. He had one eye on his career after playing. It did appear from from what I'd read in the press that I thought, oh, this is another case of like Knighton with Pop Robson. And Pop Robson has been eased out prematurely in favour of youth, uh, even though Leighton James is still only 30 years old. And it seems, looking back now, whether Leighton James, I don't know how, how he feels about it now, whether he would have moved onto the, or tried to move onto the coaching side so soon, I don't know. I think, I think it was just to the, to the, spectators looking in and reading the press, it seemed that Leighton James was being prematurely lined up or, or trying to be moved into the coaching side. and But that, in fact, that wasn't the case. And regardless of all this speculation, about, about five matches or less into the season, everybody realised we can't do without Leighton James yet. Anyway, he's, he's got to be brought back into the team. Off the pitch early on in the 83-84 season, the Rebel shareholders resurfaced. There are reports that Tom Cowie had stormed out of a board meeting call to discuss two motions to call another EGM. Possibly around this time, former chairman Keith Collins and fellow director Peter Hayward tendered their resignations and they sell their shares to an unnamed buyer who turns out to be Cowie and the Rebels concede defeat. Does that finally quieten things down off the pitch? It, it does quieten them down, but unfortunately, quietness uh, does not is not always good news. In in the sense that the shareholder, the rebel shareholder, that was brought on board, so to speak, because I think Tom Cowie and the rest of the board thought that was the best place to control uh, the disruption that had been 
created when he was out of the, um, not part of the club, was that the rebel shareholder that was brought in on board ultimately sided with, ironically, sided with Tom Cowie in the split vote that ended in Durban's departure in in March 84. So it did quieten things down, but um, unfortunately, they, um, what was going on simmering beneath the surface was, was bad news boiling up to uh, what be unleashed in, in the March 84. Still to come on When Shorts Were Short. I believe we were denied some glory years through lack of patience, lack of vision, lack of intelligence on the part of people who didn't really know football, lacking in in football know-how. Thank you for downloading When Shorts Were Short. You might be interested in supporting the show's Patreon page. Supporters will get each new episode a fortnight early, as well as bonus episodes exclusive to patrons. Show your support for the podcast at patreon.com forward slash shorts were short. Your support for the podcast is appreciated. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. the end of 83 a piece appears on the back pages of the echo where the chairman intimates that more flair is needed to attract bigger crowds and higher salaries would have to be paid and that the job of building a more exciting team was down to the manager what was happening here was cowie pinning the blame for the lack of excitement on durban who you know as we've spoken about on this episode hadn't been backed too often in the transfer market in his two and a half seasons there very, very probably because what i mean as far as i can see the situation hadn't changed from the summer when durban was more or less totally had to generate funds to buy gracewell and proctor and then how, how can the money suddenly be available six months down the line when attendances are roughly the same, there's been no sales. So how can the money be? He said, oh, I've told Alan the, mon- the money's there now. Alan doesn't want to buy just yet. So, I mean, the, the two just don't square up. And, and also, after the uh, case of look at what we could have had, because I think now that Cowie is looking for a Keegan-esque type signing, somebody of that stature for a, a you know Kagan's official feet in your castle before you start taking in all the sponsorship and add-ons was the basic fee was a hundred thousand pounds. It was all tied up, I think, in the contract in personal terms and spin-offs. If Cowie was thinking there was going to be another such deal possible, um, I mean, players of Kagan's ilk were, were were very rare. It was it was just totally unrealistic. There's a further ominous development for Durban. Barry Beatty is appointed to the board of directors. Was there any way Durban at this stage was going to be able to persuade Beatty that he was the right man for Sunderland? And how did Beatty and Cowie work together from then on? Well, whether Durban could have influenced Beatty or achieved some sort of better working relationship, I don't know. But Durban isn't, isn't a yes man. He's not a person who compromises principles to smooth people over. I mean, there were opportunities if he wanted to ingratiate himself, but 
why why should he? And Alan Durban's not that kind of person. I think uh, once he was onto the board of directors, Barry Beatty was the sort of director who would start to travel because of, because of his new position. He was able to travel with the team on the team coach to for away trips. And so there was that, yes, Durban could have ingratiated himself uh, with Beatty, but why why do that if it meant compromising your principles and saying things you didn't mean? And then the working relationship with Cowie seemed to disintegrate as the season progressed. There seemed to be a personal issue which Cowie used, where which in the normal, well, under other circumstances, if the results were going well, if a team had embarked on a long cup run, it's the sort of minor trivial thing that could have would have been turned a blind eye to, rushed under the carpet. It, it was relatively inconsequential. I was told by an insider who worked for the club, told it wasn't for public consumption, and I respected that. It didn't. It wasn't to be in the book. But you can believe me, it, it was relatively minor, both then in 1984 and now nowadays. It wouldn't have been, a, you know, a front page headline. So, but and it's a sort of thing that would be turned a blind eye or, or or not become an issue in a successful setup. But Cowie um, and Durban's relationship did well, his working relationship sort of disintegrated during '83, '84. What about Beatty and Cowie? How? Because I think at, at one point you're right that all of a sudden, you know, Beatty's gone from being the rebel shareholder. The, the principal rebel uh, shareholder to to being a bit cosy with uh, Cowie once he's on the um, once he's on the board. Yes, it it it, it seems completely out of kilter with what had gone before, and approximately within twelve months, there are very public loggerheads again. Prior to the the Mill Cup final, Barry Beatty um, has promised the squad, unbeknown to Cowie, for Cup final bonuses. I think. It was all tied up with that, and things went downhill. Headlines in the in the local newspapers constantly about the boardroom battles. People have described it as a toxic atmosphere, and so it was very it was a very short lived alliance. To Alan Durban calls it an act of cowardice. People feel he was stabbed in the back. We're coming to the end of Durban's time at Sunderland now. Just before we cover that. The new Nike strip at some point during the season is adorned with the name of the chairman's auto company, Cowies. Do we ever find out how much the chairman, if at all, was paying for that privilege and if any of that money was given over towards strengthening the team? No, and, and yes, I, I used the word adorned and put it in inverted commas in the book. <laughs> it wasn't a popular name in, um, to go on, I think, with the, with the Sunderland supporters. Um, whether the, the actual monetary value, there seemed to be a bit of mystery over it, and that, and that was a, that stuck in the throat of a, a number of Sunderland supporters, especially when the transfer funds didn't immediately, extra transfer funds didn't immediately start to um, spout up from anywhere, and whether the, the, the precise figure was revealed in subsequent annual general meetings in the, in the official club accounts, I, I don't know, and I really wasn't that interested to find out. <laughs> That's fair enough. So we come to the fourth round defeat at home in the FA Cup to Birmingham. And from this moment on, the media are speculating on Durban's future. And at the end of February 84, Sunderland narrowly lose at United 2-1. 
it completes a, a month of fixtures, as you point out, against the sides line first, second, third, sixth, and seventh. They're in 16th place. They're nine points clear of third from bottom place Stoke. They have a game in hand. It doesn't look like they're going to go down. Friday, the 2nd of March, the day before a home game against Arsenal, Durban is summoned to Cowie's business offices for a 9.30 a.m. meeting. What happens next? The meeting didn't last very long. I think Durban continued his planned journey into work, in inverted commas, uh, for, and he was there by 10 o'clock for a planned press conference. Uh, so the meeting hadn't lasted very long at all. He was sacked, told that, uh, I don't know whether he, he at the time had been told, uh, well, he probably wouldn't have been, but the agonising nature of the vote, uh, the boardroom vote, three to two, the same margin that ignored the opportunity to appoint Brian Clough ahead of Jimmy Adamson, three to two uh, back in the 70s. And it's it's so agonising to think how how those fine margins. So Durban is sacked. He he typically the sort of non-professionalism exercised around the corridors of Rotor Park at the time is left to make the announcement to the press himself. The press expecting a rudimentary sorry just yeah just a rudimentary rundown of the any injuries for to, the following day's game and what just just an ordinary pre-match press conference. So they were stunned. If there had been any inkling, there would have been a photographer there to catch the moment, which there wasn't. Was Durban surprised? He was surprised by the timing. He 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 knew that he was in bother. Um, he'd made one or two statements leading up to the preceding couple of matches where I think he knew he was on borrowed time. But the timing was... Well, that's why he used the word cowardice. We're sitting in the position in the league we have a, a a match that was postponed from January, a home match against Queen's Park Rangers coming up in the following midweek, in addition to the to the Saturday home match versus Arsenal. Arsenal and Queen's Park Rangers are mid-table teams. They're not going for Europe. They're not in relegation bother. So two eminently winnable, well, you're looking at realistically, not... Um, unrealistic prospects are getting four points or possibly six out of six um, out of the two matches. It's a Friday before the before the fixture to be sacked when you're preparing the team for an important match. And it, it's as if the board thought, well, we don't want to give the manager the chance to cram in four or six points out of these two fixtures to rake these, these points in and Sunderland go up the table and it'll make our job, well, um, our wish to sack the manager all the more difficult to uh, convey to the press and the supporters. I think Alan Durham was surprised by the timing, yes. The rest of that season for Sunderland, uh, Len Ashurst takes over. I think they finish mid-table, 12th or 13th, if I'm right. Yeah, 13th. Which suggests a very comfortable end to that season. Was, was that the case? No, it was far from comfortable. We went into the last final match of the season at Leicester City, still in relegation bother. As it happened, the fact that Birmingham City on the final day couldn't defeat Southampton at home made Sunderland's victory at Leicester uh, academic. Uh, and in 13th position with 52 points, the final table looks relatively comfortable. Well, it was another final day scenario. And the, the run-in 
the final third of the season, the fixtures that Ashurst got to oversee were on paper. I know no, no top flight fixture is easy, but they were easier than the, the, the horrible run that Durban had been faced with in the fixture list in, in, in the February. So, yes, relatively comfortable looking final league table, but it was another final day of agony for the Sunderland supporters to endure. Alan Durban's managerial career never quite recovers after Sunderland, does it? Because there's a there's a difficult two-year spell at Cardiff that follows from 84 to 86 that sees Cardiff relegated from the second all the way down to the fourth. And rather curiously, in terms of management, that's it for Alan Durban. And he's still so young. He's only 45 by that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, he admits with hindsight um, it was more an emotional decision to return to Cardiff when he was offered the job. He, he started his playing career at Cardiff City. Um, he admits it was a mistake. It was it was a no-win situation. Parlour State he inherited there. I think if he'd bided his time a little longer, part of the way through season, the, the ensuing season, 84-85, when the first managerial casualties started to hit the deck, he would have surely have been offered a, a, either a, a first division or a top second division a post. Bear in mind when he was with Sunderland, to use again the expression fallen giants, uh, Leeds United and Manchester City both had Durban in their sights, but they were denied, I think, uh, permission to speak to Durban. And Durban wasn't looking to leave Sunderland either. He still had um, visions that, he, that you know, he, he could achieve success at Roger Park. But um, the two big clubs were, were willing to, or wanted Alan Durban as their manager in the summer of 82. Sorry, yeah, in summer of 82. And then again in the summer of 83. By, by autumn 84, if Alan Durban had still been free and hadn't taken the kind of manager's job, I, I'm convinced he would have been, he would pro- in fact, he probably would have been locking horns with Sunderland at some point during season 84, 85. In, in, a first, in, a, in a top flight fixture. And of course, we have to remember that we're talking about a guy whose profile was still high in the game, a guy who'd won, a, you know, he'd won titles at Derby County. So certainly his stock in the game you know, would have been higher. So it's no surprise to hear you talking about him being linked with some big clubs still at that stage of his career in the mid 80s. By 87, this is something really interesting uh, towards the end of Give Us Tomorrow Now. You mention a particular piece. It's 1987. Sunderland are now down in the third division. The chairman, Cowie, I think he's left in 86. Laurie McMenemy's two-year reign has been a disaster. And you write that a journalist, Paul Hetherington, put together an incisive piece in the Sunday Express tracing the club's decline back to Sunderland's cup exit to Birmingham in January 84 and Durban sacking not long after. And I wanted to ask you if there's something in this, because around this time, we've got managers like Howard Kendall, even younger than Durban. He's Kendall is given time after two and a half very difficult seasons at Everton to turn the club around, to turn them into the country's best side. But was Durban as good a manager potentially as someone like Kendall? And was the talent at Sunderland under Durban comparable to what Kendall had at Everton? Oh, yes, certainly. And then I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> but uh, I, I believe that the potential was certainly there to be in that bracket 
I'm not saying I'm not. I don't think Sunderland would have been winning the, the the first division championship and going on to winning the European Cup Winners Cup in the in the subsequent two seasons. But it's hard to take for my generation. I think of Sunderland supporters that would I I believe we were denied some glory years through lack of patience, lack of vision, lack of intelligence on, on the part of people who didn't really know football, lacking in in football know-how, obviously making the decisions. And he, he, we could have achieved, someone could have achieved great success under Alan Durban. If you think of the players, the squad that was dismantled by a combination, Usher started the job, McMenemy finished it off. Players that left, Chris Turner, Barry Benison, Nick Pickering, Lee Chapman, Paul Bracewell, the, the top-rated coach, Pop Robson, was allowed to leave. Just mentioning there, you've mentioned Paul Bracewell, Lee Chapman, uh, there's Barry Benison as well. Those three players alone, they actually go on to win league championships. There's, there's no question that the talent was there. It was like, uh, almost like the, the blue touch paper had been lit through a combination of personalities and both in the boardroom and then the subsequent two managers. It's like the, the blue touch uh, paper was uh, fizzled out. Um, and it's ironic that it took one of Durban's former players, one of his generals at Stoke City, so to speak, Dennis Smith, to resurrect the team or, or to start the, the rebuild and uh, get the team, uh, well, get, back on, get the team back on its feet. Lastly, did you learn anything from writing the book that you weren't aware of before? Well, James told me one or two stories that couldn't go in the book, certainly. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, but um, as, soon, as soon as you said Leighton James, I got the impression uh, you wouldn't be able to actually tell us what those stories were. No. From, from speaking to the former players, the people who, who knew what was going, the inside story, um, it confirmed... Um, one or two theories that I, I had um, about Alan Durban's style of management, you know, how he wasn't the type to have the arm around the shoulder, but he did inspire them. He did inspire individuals. You know, when you have a, a man coming in and say, you can do a job for me, and he makes you feel 10 feet tall, you want to, throw, you want to run, run through a brick wall for him. Yes, he's not going to pamper you and, and pander you if you don't put the work in. But he, he, did, he did have that motivation. Young players knew they would get the chance if they were good enough or and they worked hard enough. He, he would give them the chance to flourish. A, a lot of, of what I've written was, was lasered into the hard disk of my brain. And I, really, I just had to flesh out some of the fine, fine points, get a few inside stories and um, get a few good pictures. Thank you to David Snowden. David can be followed on Twitter at Dr. Snowden and give us tomorrow now. Alan Durban's Mission Impossible is published by Pitch Publishing and is available via the Pitch website, Amazon and all good bookshops. There'll be links in the show notes. Thank you to Pitch for a copy of the book. They can be followed on Twitter at Pitch Publishing and props to David who has been very supportive of the show on social media and also generous enough to help set up interviews with both Alan Durban and Leighton James. Both interviews now recorded. Those will be available later on in this second series.
As always, please do rate and review when shorts were short on Apple Podcasts, even if that's not the podcast provider you use for subscribing. Apple Podcasts remains the all-important way for any show to grow. Thank you all for listening. The podcast can be followed on both Twitter and Instagram at Shorts Were Short and Facebook.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. If you want to join the group page on there, please do. If you want to drop the show an email, you can get me Shorts Were Short at 1607westegg.com. All my work can be found at DanielRuizTizen.com. The podcast can be supported at Patreon.com forward slash Shorts Were Short. Sign up for your season ticket there. Lots of content on the way. Thank you for your time. The artwork is by Tom Hadfield. The music is 80 synth pop by Toto Cyberspace. I've been Daniel Ruiz Tyson. This has been When Shorts Were Short. If the shorts weren't short, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm.